Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's that comedy podcast where me and my brother John, we answer... I'm farting, so I'm just going to let that go, and then I'm going to start over again. Great. Good plan. It's a comedy podcast where me and my brother John, we answer your question, give you debuse advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. How are you, John? I'm a little bit stressed out, to be honest. I've got just a lot of work stress. I've got a lot of work uh, stress as well. I blame you for this, actually, Hank, because if I, none of my work stress comes from sitting alone in a basement and trying to write a novel. It all comes from you. You know, I think some of it comes from sitting alone in a basement and trying to write a novel, so... Well, I haven't really written in a, about a month and a half, so it can't it can't be that at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, well, uh, I didn't sleep very much last night, and, uh, and I... Uh, but I'm still a huge fan of my child. Sometimes when he's uh, he's crying at night, I'll I'll go to his cradle and I'll I'll go to try and soothe him. But I don't want him to see me because that will wake him up more. Yeah. Um. And so he'll be crying, and then I like try and sneak up to his cradle, and then I'll look at his face to see what he looks like. Yeah. And he'll make eye contact with me, and he just smiles. Oh. And I'm like, oh, no, dude. That's so sweet. It is, but like, go to sleep. I thought you were gonna say um that he can he can sense you or hear you and he wakes up and starts crying. But yeah, I mean, it's very hard to get babies to sleep, Hank. There is no, uh, there is no magic to it. I, uh, it's, uh, it's very, I, I, I'm very sorry. That's all I can say. I'm, I'm stuttering and stumbling because I just, I feel for you. It is really hard to go through the world extremely tired. Yeah. Do you know, John, we actually have several questions from people who have uh, had problems with their baby sleeping, which is the first time I've noticed that. Which is fine, but we, we don't want to get there yet. We've got to get to the short poem. Okay, you can do that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Today's short poem comes from Kobayashi Isa, and it's a haiku, Hank. I know how you love haikus. I really love this haiku. Somebody sent it in, a uh, listener to Dear Hank and John. Thanks for sending it in. It goes like this. The wren earns his living noiselessly. It's good. It's very good. 
Mm. It's everything mm. I want a haiku to be. Hank, I have a question for you that's related uh, to the Wren earning its living noiselessly. Are you going to ask how we could earn our living noiselessly? Because I think that would be really hard because part of what we do is make noise. It's like kind of our thing. Uh, yeah, no, that's what I was going to ask. Is there any way we could move to sort of a, <laughs> like a John Cage four minutes and 33 seconds style podcast? Yeah, just Well, we could do that once, I think. We could put out a, just a, just a, the short poem and then it would just be silence for the rest of the podcast. Uh, people would love it. People would love it. People would love it. Um, um, Hank, yeah. I want to read to you a question. Okay. It comes from Crystal. Hank and I are both very tired. I don't know if you guys can tell. <laughs> uh, this comes from Crystal who writes, Dear John and Hank, I have a brand new four-week-old baby. When does it stop sucking? Don't get me wrong. She's beautiful and magical and I love her, but it sucks. Help a mama out. Give me a light at the end of the baby-shaped tunnel crystal i do think that when the smiling starts happening that that does help quite a lot smiling is great you know what's even better is like talking once they can really communicate with you although you know that comes with its own set of disadvantages i i have a theory that like every part of parenting is both every part of parenting is both difficult and magical both exhausting and electrifying uh and and so you you just have to kind of ride the waves of it and understand that it's a wave I, I do think it gets a lot easier once they start sleeping at night, uh, which four-week-old babies mm-hmm. usually do not do. Yep. Um, so it gets easier once you start to be able to sleep six or seven hours in a row, Crystal. And I hope for you that's around 11 or 12 weeks. It might be longer, but that's my hope for you. Yeah, and in, ge- in general, I will suggest talking to other parents uh, or or you know, people who have like realistic feelings about this. Um oftentimes like when i've been, when i've read like parent things like they gloss over the fact that it's really hard and i think that that's not yeah. i think that's not the thing to do yeah it's really easy to catastrophize when you haven't slept much like the longer you go without sleeping the more minor problems seem to be existential i think you are right john it is very hard and especially when you are sleep deprived and uh, everything. This morning I had to do the dishes and I was like trying to do the dishes, but I was so tired and I broke a dish and I, I, I truly felt like that was it, you know, that like I'd reached the end of my experiment with humanness, that my life was over. I just looking down at the dish and just being like, oh my God, I've just added 15 minutes to my already busy day. Oh my God. Uh, we've got... A somewhat related question, correct, John, that you would like to to move on to? We do. David sent us a very long uh, and wonderful email, but I'm only going to read the end of it, which reads, I'm having a baby daughter next month, and we haven't been able to pick a name. No, we won't use Ryan. Currently, <laughs> we have it narrowed down to Kira, Elena, and Oriella, Ori for short. What is your opinion? We are open to other names that aren't Ryan. First off, David, I am deeply offended. And also, you're making a horrible mistake. I think that, I, you know, I think it's going to be okay, John. I think that David can make his own decisions. Uh, but what is the mistake you think he's making? No, I don't agree at all. Ori, Ori, which is a lovely name, by the way, Oriella, or, Aurelia, or, or I don't know how to say it, but it's a lovely name. Ori, A-U-R-I, is actually an anagram of the name I'm going to propose for this child, R-I-A-N, Ryan. Well, but there's no N in Ori. Oh, I'm not that good at anagrams. <laughs> it's funny because you heard a whole book about them. Yeah, yeah, but I used an anagram generator. 
<laughs> I'm not as smart as the kid in that book. <laughs> yeah, that's the nice thing about writing writing books about smart people. You can take all the time to make them smart. Uh, and it seems like you they, they didn't take any time at all. I guess you could just name the kid Ryeu. 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 Uriah. What about like Rao? Or just Rye. You know, when I was a kid, Hank, uh, I had an acquaintance whose name I won't actually say. It's this is one of those names where it's so uncommon that it becomes very easy uh, to Google the person if I say their name. All I'll say <laughs> is that their name was uh, an amalgam of the two colors in the parents' favorite college football team. Oh, man. Uh, so, for instance, if it had been the University of Alabama, which it wasn't, the name might have been like, uh, I, I believe it's the Crimson and White, so it might have been like... Uh, Crite. Cremite. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad idea. But the actual name was so much worse than that, but I don't feel like I can... Uh, I don't feel like I can out this person, so I can't. I can't tell the joke. But anyway, long story We're short, so David, tired. you should clear. We're you so should tired. obviously name your daughter Ryan. You could name your child Oriella and then call her Rye for short, and that's kind of like Ryan. Or just call her Ryan for short. I mean, here's my case, David. When when your kid asks inevitably, as they will in like you know five to seven years, well, where did my name come from? You're going to be able to look at that child and you're going to be able to say it was an inside joke on the Internet's 237th most popular comedy podcast. Yeah. And that's something that that kid is going to take with them and it's going to keep them warm on cold nights for the rest of their life. Yeah. And what you can say is it doesn't matter if you're popular as long as you're funny and aware of the inevitability of your own demise. Memento Mori. We've got another question, John. It's also about children. We're just going to, I'm picking all the children one. It's not really a question. It comes from Red. I just wanted to tell you guys that one night when I was crying on the couch with my few weeks old son breastfeeding for the billionth hour, and I realized the baby's umbilical storp was gone, the dog was chewing ominously. Sin- seriously, Red. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, oh, boy. Thanks for that question. Uh, or, well, you know, lots of people do, you know, people people cook and eat the uh, yeah. the umbilical cord. Well, the, the, uh, that the placenta. I don't know that you can eat the, the, the umbilical cord. It's got a lot of connective tissue in it. It's like fingernail. That's, that was bad. Okay, th- time to move <laughs> on. God, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. We're both very tired, and I feel like I inadequately answered that first question. And I, I want to say that everyone feels this way, and it's terrible for everyone when you have a tiny child and you're not sleeping at all. And uh, it is really hard. And like, it does, that's one of the things that people yeah. did not prepare me for when I was having a kid that, like, it is not easy. No, it is hard. It is hard. Hank, I want to read you a question that I need the answer to, and I'm hoping you have the answer to. It comes from Elena. She writes, Dear John and Hank, recently people have been telling me that eggs do not need to go in the refrigerator. That seems silly to me as I work. Lies. What? I said lies. Oh, eggs do need to go in the refrigerator? Well, I'll explain it. It's actually kind of complicated. Okay. Well, I I won't even bother getting to the end of the question, although Elena had a lovely email, but you clearly (laughs) don't want me to read it because you cut me off by saying lies. Why do you need to refrigerate your eggs? Uh, It depends on where you live, remarkably enough. In the U.S., we uh, are very careful about salmonella, maybe because we like to eat our eggs pretty raw here. Uh, I don't know if that's the case in other countries, but we do uh, like to not cook our eggs very much. 
Um, and so we like the the uh, Department of Agriculture or the USDA. That's the same thing. Or the, whoever handles the food re- regulations in this country requires that eggs are washed. And so the eggs come out of the chickens and then they get washed off so that there's no stuff uh, on that that might give you a disease. But that also washes off a bunch of proteins that like clog up the pores in the eggs that make eggs last much longer and basically don't require them to be refrigerated. So if you get eggs from your chicken, you don't have to you don't have to refrigerate those. You can wash them beforehand or you can basically not wash them at all if you're not super concerned about it. Um in other countries, eggs are not washed in the same way, and so they don't refrigerate eggs. And so sometimes people go to other countries and they say, look, look at all these eggs that aren't being refrigerated. Why do we refrigerate our eggs in America? It's just because we're crazy. No, maybe, a little bit. It's be- But you can't not refrigerate eggs in America. American eggs do have to be refrigerated. Well, just another example of American exceptionalism. <laughs> we, our eggs are cleaner than anybody's. We've got the cleanest eggs on Earth. And the most refrigerated. Well, we're just trying to trying to keep people alive, uh, and and that's that's what we decided was a way to do it. Salmonella sucks. I am strongly opposed to salmonella. This uh, next question we have is from Nayala, who asks, Dear Green Brothers, I like how you avoided the controversy there. After listening to last week's pod and hearing the fantastic news of Beyonce's pregnancy to twins, it got me thinking. Uh, it got me and my wife thinking, how long until everyone alive on the planet is at least distantly related to Beyonce? Like, how many generations do we have to make it before we've gotten to the perfect utopia where everyone currently alive is at least a tiny bit Beyonce? This question is very important as my wife and I desperately need some sort of plausible utopia to look forward to in these dark times. Quaffles in gyoza, Niala. Well, I have good news and bad news, Hank. I also have good news and bad news. But you, you go first. Okay, so my bad news is that I'm pretty sure humans won't survive long enough for everyone on Earth to be related to Beyonce. How long do you think that would take, John? Uh, it, so I know that uh, all people of European descent are related to, are, are descended from Charlemagne, uh, the... Mm, mm-hmm. And also everyone else who was alive back then. I'm not sure that all humans are necessarily no in europe I oh mean. right not oh oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, and i know that all living humans are um descended from confucius and i know that almost all living humans are descended from muhammad uh so it can't have been that long but i also think those people from back then had a big advantage because the population was smaller mm-hmm. uh, whereas you know if you look a thousand years into the future the human population is probably going to, it's pretty big now and it's probably going to get a little bit bigger and then stabilize and then maybe slowly taper off. Uh, so I, I don't know the answer to this question, but I don't think that humans have a very good chance of existing in 2000 years, which is how long I think it would take. I, I think a 2000 years is a good guess. I mean, I mean, the things that are going to mess this up, though, like the thing that could make it much less is if there is some kind of apocalyptic event and we lose a lot of people, then it's much easier for us to all be related to each other quite quickly um, because there will be Only if we people. make sure that Beyonce's descendants survive, right. which, which is key. I mean, obviously, we need to prioritize it's, that. It's key uh, to, to this happening, but also it seems quite likely. I mean, it seems to me that Beyonce's descendants would have an above-average chance of surviving just just by where they are going to be on the socioeconomic spectrum. Sure. Uh, but but also because uh, of just being amazing, I assume. 
Um, I don't want to put too much pressure on Beyonce's children. I was going to say, no pressure, unborn babies. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say that, to be clear, we are all distantly related to Beyonce. Like, we are all already... Like, we share so much in common with Beyonce. Far more than you could imagine, really. We are so very close to being exactly Beyonce. Mm. But, in addition to that, we are all, you know, related to everything on the planet that's alive. So, it's not actually that exceptional. That's true. uh, That we are all related to Beyonce. We are also all related to, like, bananas. We're significantly closer related to people of our species than we are uh, to... Bananas, but yeah, I I I understand your point. Um, I I think it's important to remember that, you know, the main thing that's going to be difficult about getting all humans to be descended from Beyonce is keeping humans around as a species for another thousand years. So I think if that if if that if we just make that the focus, it will have this like unexpectedly right. wonderful side mm-hmm. benefit. Of uh, all of us being descended from Beyonce in just maybe like, I don't know, like 3,000 or 4,000 yeah. short generations. <laughs> Definitely not generations. Uh, that's a long, long... Oh, I meant like, I'm sorry, yeah. two two or 300 generations. Yeah. I don't, I'm so, Hank, I'm so tired. Yes, I know, so you're, bad at I know math you're very tired. tired. I, I have to ask you an important question, I'm not question, good at though. anagramming. I'm not good at any part of, I'm not good at any part of, uh, 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 I was going to okay. say video blogging, but that's not even <laughs> what we're doing right now. So, so my important question is, how long do you think it will be until all living humans are descended from at least one minion? Um, do you mean like the minions in the movie Minions? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I've got good news and bad news, and it's actually the same news, and it's just in how you look at it, like a lot of news, which is that minions are not real. I also think they're they're they they don't seem to be they don't seem to reproduce sexually. Is uh this is is a sentence that has created an awful image in my brain. Yeah, I mean, I want to go back in time to the part <laughs> of life where I had never considered minion reproduction. <laughs> What I what I like to think of was like the the halcyon days when America was definitely uh, not compromised by Vladimir Putin and I didn't have to think about minion sex. I want to write a whole book on minion sex now. I just want to know how it works. Uh, Please, please don't. Speaking of, John. Yeah. Speaking of, here's a question from Ruby, right. who asks, Dear Hank and John, I've noticed that, a di- that different households have different norms for toilet use during the night. In my house, we just flush, like all times of the day. But at my friends' houses, they don't, so that no one is woken from the noise. My question is, if I'm staying at someone else's house, should I flush or not? It makes me uncomfortable to leave it unflushed. But then again, perhaps I should just do what is the norm in that household. Thank you for making the podcast, Ruby. Uh, I... How, uh, so, so this, this, I wanted to answer this question because it, it, it brings up a, a question that I, I'm curious about. Mm-hmm. This is someone else's toilet, definitely. But the water in the toilet, yeah, is kind of public property. It's, it, I understand that like it's been paid for, but it's, it's kind of a public service. But the thing I put in the toilet, right. that's mine. Right, I made that, and. So where does the where's the line between what is mine and what is not mine? Like, is the toilet handle the toilet handle's not mine? Mm-hmm. So should I not touch the toilet handle because that's 
that's the not mine area, but I am trying to, like, I'm, I don't want to, I'm not trying to, like, push a toilet handle. I'm trying to eliminate the existence of the thing that is mine. And so the toilet handle is just sort of a mechanism through which I would like to do that. Yeah, I don't think anybody would ever welcome you into their house and say, also, don't touch any of the things that are mine in this house. Because then you'd have to be like, wait, but I'm, I'm currently, <laughs> my feet are on the floor. What do I do with my feet? So I, I I don't think you have to worry about that. Well, no, I, I, I think that the answer here is pretty clear, which is um, if it's I, I can't remember the exact rhyme from Camp Hank, but perhaps you will. Uh, if it's yellow, just stay mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. If it's yellow, let it let it mellow. If it's brown, yeah. flush it down. I I agree that you can't leave a duker there for somebody to find in the morning. Definitely not. Right. Uh, no, I think if it's yellow, one hundred percent of the time, you just you just let it yeah. mellow. Well, I I think that's probably good advice. I believe that. By the way, in general, there's so much unnecessary flushing of toilets in the United States. This is a somewhat uh, off-topic rant, but like the amount of unnecessary flushing of toilets in the U.S. is just baffling to me, and and that's spoken from the perspective of a committed and extreme germaphobe. Uh, it's just ridiculous how often we flush after a small pee. It's just a little bit of pee. Now, if you have a dog or a small child that drinks toilet bowl water, then maybe, yes, then maybe. But other than that, there is no reason. Anyway, let's move on, Hank. I'm going to, otherwise I'm going to lose my no, temper. I have, a, I have an addition. I have an addition. Okay. Okay. I have an addition to make, which is that if it, I think that rhyme needs an addition. Uh, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. If it's yellow and poop or brown and pee, you go see a doctor. <laughs> it's okay to have a little bit of somewhat brown pee on occasion as long as you're dehydrated. But I, honestly, <laughs> if you're getting your health advice from Dear Hank and John, you've made some terrible life choices. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay, John, you got another question uh, for not me. Not really. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, think I, can, I think I can find one, but I did, I, the answer to did I have one already is no. No, I didn't. <laughs> oh, this question is from Adam. I thought this was pretty interesting, Hank. He writes, hello, best brothers. That's too high of a compliment, Adam. Unfortunately, we're not able to accept it because of the Gregory brothers um, and also the Wright brothers. You know, <laughs> I mean, without them, we wouldn't have air travel. I, don't get me wrong. I'm, I think we're extraordinary, but, you know. Let's not, let's not blow it out of proportion, Adam. Anyway, sometimes I feel like the only way to have an impact on the world at large is to first become rich and then use my fiscal power to help people or influence government. However, until I acquire wealth, what are some ways to help steer this great American ship toward kinder, gentler, and more accepting destinations? Receptively yours, Adam. So, Hank, uh, you don't know a lot of rich people. Like, in your day-to-day -day life, you don't, like, hang out with rich people. I... Mm -hmm. Am like not to brag, an anthropologist of rich people. <laughs> I hang out with a bunch of rich people, and I am like a student of their ways. And Adam, I will tell you a secret about rich people, which is that rich people also believe that they need to get rich in order to have an influence on the world at large. But they find as they get richer, as if by magic, that they are never quite rich enough yet to have that influence that they're waiting to have. Uh, so you're already there, my friend. You're just on a, on a hamster wheel that as long as you believe that one day you will be rich enough to make a difference, 
you will just stay on that hamster wheel trying to get richer and richer and richer and richer and you will find over time that you have more things to spend money on. You'll start to think, oh man, I actually need to belong to this country club. And then if you get stupid rich, you'll start to think, you know what I need? What would be better for everyone, including the world, would be if I had a private jet or a yacht (laughs) or whatever. Oh my God. If you worship money, it will never be enough. Whatever you worship... uh, it will it will never be enough and so that is my theory i I think if you if you try to make money to make a difference in the end you're just going to stay on the hamster wheel yeah so try to worship making a difference rather than making money um and uh but like john you do see that like there are a lot of super rich folk that do have this oversized influence on politics. Yes. Um, uh, There are certainly more rich folks than choose to do that. It's interesting that a lot of rich people choose to do other things with their money, whether that's, you know, make more money with it or do good things with it or... or, you know, like get it put put it into like trying to get candidates elected. But I don't even know that that works that well. No, I don't think it does. I think... uh like spending money to try to influence politics uh, has not been particularly effective in the United States in the last 50 years. Now, I do think that you can influence like state and local politics a lot. Um, but yeah, I cert- buying campaign ads doesn't work. I think lobbying works. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I just think in general, if I think you said it perfectly, Hank, if, you, if, you, if the focus is not on how can I get money so I can change the world or how can I get money so I can make life better for the people around me, but instead on how can I make life better for the people around me? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a much more fulfilling way of living. And I was, I, I know I was like being way oversimplifying in my, in my little rant. So I want to be clear about that, but <laughs> I, I, I do really, really believe that uh, it's just never, it's never enough if it's what, if it's the end, like, so make, like Hank said, make the end something that never having enough of it will be good. Uh, Hank, is there an inherent meaning to human life or is it constructed by us? Is this a question from a listener, John, or is this just you've decided to ask the big one? No, I just wonder what you think. Is there like an inherent objective (laughs) meaning to human life? Or are we just here to turn oxygen into carbon dioxide? Well, certainly not the second. Um, because because you can't say, is there an inherent objective meaning or is there no meaning at all? Because there's a, there's a second thing. I think that you like there could be a case to be made that there is an inherent, inherent objective meaning to life. Um, and which, which is uh, which is the continuation of life. Uh, that is a uh, it is a natural uh, process. It is a it is beyond natural. It is a physical process. Um, the the way that life is a physical process is very complicated and cool. And I like I want to get into it, but not right now. Um, but I think that there's also something to be said that like if you want to if you want to create a sort of like an easily objectifiable uh, purpose for life. You can. There are a number of things that you can put it on. I like to put it on complexity. I think that, the, like the 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 work that is being done 
by all organisms, but by humans better than any organism is like organization of things, like putting putting molecules together in ways that that would not happen without a life uh, to put them together in that way. Mm -hmm. Fighting against entropy, basically, like mm -hmm. like the kind of the goal against life is just to kind of catch entropy on its way down and be like, while you're crashing down toward a state of disorder, we're gonna do something interesting with this. Mm -hmm. And so there's like, that, that's like a, like a way of talking about the purpose of life in a, in, a, in a way that like is fundamental to physics. But I think that really it's all internal to humans. And I, but that doesn't make it not real. Right. And I like, so yeah, I mean, like, I think that we both agree that there is a purpose to life, but it is decided upon by the things that are doing the living. Right. One of the things that, and there's nothing that, that doesn't make it less real. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently is how there is something beautiful and heroic and uh, fascinating about the process of humans and also other animals, but especially humans making uh, something in a place where previously existed nothing. Uh, like that's what a, a great story or a great work of art or a great poem does, right? Is like it creates mm -hmm. inside of you an experience or a space where there was previously nothing. It like takes, uh, what is it? There's a line from uh, uh, William Faulkner's Nobel Prize speech that I don't want to butcher, so I'm going to Google it. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm no dummy. Uh, Right at the beginning of this uh, the, this Nobel Prize speech, the greatest Nobel Prize speech, I think, in the history of the universe, uh, he, Faulkner said, uh, I feel that this award was made not to me as a man, but to my work, a life's work in the agony and sweat of the human spirit, not for glory and least of all for profit, but to create out of the materials of the human spirit something which did not exist before. And that process of making things from essentially nothing uh, making something that didn't exist before. That is a cool thing mm -hmm. that all humans do. Mm -hmm. And we do it like directly into... And really other animals do it too, but humans are really good yeah, at it. Yeah, we do it directly into each other all the time. Like that's what communication is, is like right. this creation of a thing and, yeah. like, and, and like our conception of ourselves even and of the people that like that we know well enough to conceive of is pretty cool. I mean it like... I'm starting to feel a little hopeful, I know, Hank. me too. Good job, John. Today's podcast is brought to you by The Meaning of Life. The Meaning of Life, it, we think there is one. <laughs> this podcast is also brought to you by The Pee in the Toilet. Just leave it. It's fine. Pee in the Toilet, just leave it. That's a good song. That's a really good song, Hank. Did you write that just now? I, oh, yeah. It's part of my new ad campaign that I'm working on for Pee in the Toilet. <laughs> we really need better market incentives to uh, preserve natural resources and... And so I actually think that's a pretty good idea. Uh, and of course, today's podcast is also brought to you by Beyonce's Descendants. Beyonce's Descendants, soon enough, hopefully, God willing, all of us. <laughs> also, this podcast is brought to you by the weird, lumpy stump left behind uh, when your baby's umbilical cord falls off. Uh, it's real gross, and your dog loves it. Mm. It's probably my least favorite sponsor we've ever had. <laughs> 
it's right up there with uh, it's right up there with mating minions in uh, the least fun things that have ever happened on our podcast. So we all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but there are two things that you shouldn't compromise on. One is name brand Dr Pepper. The off brand stuff just doesn't hit the same. And another is of course your health. So don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines or their family group chat or the crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally, no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat basically any condition you're searching for. And the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. So go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash dear hank zocdoc dot com slash dear hank <laughs> this question is from nicole john uh who asked dear hank and john i'm trying to write high fantasy i wanted to talk a little bit more about about creating things in your brain yeah uh, i thought a lot about the magic system and the history and the big ideas of the world but i keep running into minuscule problems like what they eat and how they mark time passing and how do they get from place to place the real problem is i feel like in order to create a world i need to know sociology psychology history biology astronomy if i'm making a planet or moon politics basically everything so my question is how would i go about learning absolutely everything about how people and the world works rebel forever nicole People are taking the sign-off seriously, and I love it. Yeah, I love that people are really trying to find a good sign-off, although you'll never find one better than Memento Mori. I mean, ending all of your emails, <laughs> Memento Mori, it puts you into a next level of person. Like, it just means that everybody you know is going to be like, oh, wow, that's my Memento Mori friend. Anyway, um, oh, damn. my, my uh, mentor and first editor... Eileen Cooper, who worked with me at Booklist Magazine and helped me write and rewrite Looking for Alaska many times before it was ever published, um, used to say that the hardest thing about writing is getting a character to walk through a door. Mm -hmm. And there are times when you can be paralyzed by the complexity of trying to use language to get another person to imagine uh, walking through a door. Uh, you know, where you, you almost like get stuck inside of that. And I don't write high fantasy. I am not good at world building. Almost all of my novels are set in places where I have lived. Um, but <laughs> I do think that there's an element of trying when you're writing of trying to see it from the perspective of the reader, rather for, than from your own perspective, what's going to make the reader feel like this is real, what's going to immerse them in the world, which are the details, whether it's psychology or astronomy or whatever, that's going to make it feel real to them, rather than being obsessed with trying to make it as real as you can for, for yourself. It's a hard line, but I think like that act of empathy of trying to imagine the reader's experience is like the essential thing about writing. Yeah, Patrick Rothfuss 
talks about this and has talked to me about it several times just because I've been interviewing him for something or another thing because we're friends. And his, uh, his, his advice is like, you don't have to talk about all the things. You have to talk about the things that you know well. And so he talks about the fact that like he's kind of obsessed with currency like in his normal life. He's obsessed with how money works. And so the money is a really fleshed out thing in the King, King Killer King Killer Chronicles. Like they talk about making change and all these different cultures mm-hmm. have different money and they have to like figure out how to like like have one kind of money work in another place. Um and but like you know, for example, George R. R. Martin clearly doesn't know anything about how planets work because oftentimes things will happen on the planet that doesn't make any sense. And that's fine because it's fantasy and like maybe there's some way that this that this like the winter would last much longer sometimes than it does other times, but like that doesn't it doesn't like make sense based on how we think about how planets work, but it doesn't really matter. He doesn't really t- go into why the winter gets longer some years than other years mm-hmm. um, or why winters get, can go on for years. He just says that it does. And that's a thing. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and that's okay to not have that part of the world be fleshed out because like the politics of that world are extraordinarily fleshed out and that makes it seem real. So you have to like focus on one thing and you don't have to like be like, all right, well, I have to make a new kind of animal for them to eat because they have to eat food, but it doesn't. I don't want it to just be a deer. No, just have it be a deer. Right. In general, fine. Uh, they can eat deer. The magic of world building for me, um, like the way that I learn about it, is from reading about it. Like the the way that I uh, learn about good world building is from reading books mm-hmm. with good world building. In general, I think that reading is such a good apprenticeship for any writer. So I would look at your favorite high fantasy novels and I would see how are they doing it what is the stuff that they're glossing over and i don't even think about it or worry about it as a reader because they're focusing on this other stuff so well and it gives it that granularity and that texture that makes it feel um feel like you're inside of the story and feel like these are real people and a lot of times for me like what really makes a a novel's world building stand out is its character development like i will believe almost anything it never even occurred to me until just now that winter can't be long hank um (laughs) like that never crossed my mind uh because i'll believe almost anything if the characters are developed well and really like what sets uh, George R. R. Martin or Patrick Rothfuss apart from the vast majority of authors, including me, is character building. Yeah. Or, you know, you know, another another before we go, another writer who I would highly recommend on the world building character building front is N.K. Jemison. Have you read any N.K. Jemison books, Hank? I have not. Oh, my God. So good. And I don't even, as you know, I'm not huge on the SF fantasy world, but oh my gosh. <laughs> I, well, I've got, oh. I'm going to write it down because I'm looking for good stuff right now. But boy, do I want some thing to read that isn't the news. <laughs> uh, John, yeah. do you have news from AFC Wimbledon? I do, Hank, and you know it is uh, it is complicated news. It's it's so. Here's what happened. Okay, a couple things happened since we last visited, uh, checked in with AFC Wimbledon. First off, they played Charlton, uh, Charlton Athletic. It's a it's, so Charlton's coach is a guy named Carl Robinson. And he used to be the coach of the franchise currently playing in Milton Keynes. And he said some very disrespectful things about AFC Wimbledon over Mm. the years. He's been very much kind of like a Bond villain 
uh, in the way that he talks about the club. And he's just he's an extremely unlikable person. I don't like to say, you know, like judge people, but like he is like not liked by a wide swath of the footballing world. And uh, AFC Wimbledon were losing one nil to Charlton in the 94th minute when uh, Tom Elliott, England's greatest lyric poet and also AFC Wimbledon's current best striker, uh, <laughs> hit a stunning tying goal, thank goodness, to tie that game. Uh, and then in the aftermath of that game, something was said by someone to Carl Robinson uh, and Carl Robinson reacted very violently and had to be restrained and... Ah, uh, yeah, I don't know. So there, there, there's a lot of hullabaloo going on with it. Um, mm. A lot of people discussing if the person who said something, I don't even know who who it was. It was somebody who worked with the club on a volunteer basis, uh, should be suspended or fired or whatever. And a lot of other people saying, but Carl Robinson is a Bond villain, and sometimes you have to say bad things to Bond villains. It's complicated. I don't, I, 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 I don't think it does the club any good. Obviously. Um, to uh, verbally abuse uh, opponents, but also, I, 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 the even the way Carl Robinson talks about AFC Wimbledon in interviews about that, it just makes me so mad. I can barely focus. <laughs> I, so, like, I kind of get it, and I'm not, I'm not somebody who got my club taken away by these jackasses. Anyway, uh, then. Uh, on Valentine's Day, AFC Wimbledon played Coventry City, uh, who are currently last in League One, and they're last by a lot. And it was a home game, which is the kind of game that you have to win mm-hmm. uh, when you're playing the last place team. And we were down 1-0 in the 94th oh my minute. Uh, again. Again and again got bailed out, this time by a goal uh, from Paul Oof. Robinson, uh, center back, who I believe is 117 years old now. So it was a very <laughs> impressive performance from him. Um, but it does mean that AFC Wimbledon has slipped a little further uh, back. Now, uh, after 30 games of the 46-game season, they, are, uh, they have 39 points uh, and are currently 14th. So the critical number is that the team that is in the is in the the relegation spot at the moment. Uh, the last or the last four teams all go down. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, currently, Barry or Burry. It's spelled like the word like to bury a human. Mm-hmm. I don't. All these place names place names are made up. But they're in 21st place on 31 points, having played 32 games. Basically, Hank, if at the end of the season, at the end of the 46 game season, AFC Wimbledon has 50 points, they will probably stay up. If they have 52 points, they will d- almost definitely stay up. So, the key is to get 13 points from the remaining mm-hmm. 15 games. That should be doable, but tying. Uh, Coventry City 1-1 in the last second of the game is the kind of development that makes me a little nervous going into the the last part of the season here. I understand your your trepidation, John. I wish the boys all the best. Thank you. We appreciate that. What's the Mars news? Um, You you know what the uh, United Arab Emirates are, right, John? 
I do. I already, I actually read this Mars news. Hank, I am getting so good at Mars news. <laughs> well, they, uh, as you might know, have a lot of money. Yep. Um, and so are, in a weird way, like a sort of like a, a hotbed for what can be done if you have a lot of money mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to throw around, uh, you know, all that good oil money that's coming in right now and and a little bit of like boy we should probably figure out how to grow our economy while we have this money so that because someday we won't have it anymore because oil runs out mm-hmm. uh and they have launched a uh, just sort of announced a like sort of a, a like it's a it's the plans it's the actual plans to build a city on mars by 2117. Now I know that that's nowhere near 2028. Uh, it's quite quite a distance from 2028. It's the kind of time when uh, I will definitely be dead. But uh, it's you know it's I wouldn't say definitely. 2117. Let's, let's try to be positive. What will you be? 140. I'll be 137. Yeah. I mean, I don't love your odds. <laughs> I would say that it's under one percent. But I bet that by 2117, somebody will be alive at the age of 137. Really? That's that's a nice thing to think. Uh, I thought you were going to say somebody will be alive. And I was like, yeah, that's my brother's pessimism coming out. <laughs> well, I, I bet I you that in 2117, actually. someone will still be alive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Sheikh Mohammed, the du- Dubai ruler, um, on Tuesday announced the Mars 2117 project, which aims to build a miniature city on the planet Mars by uh, one uh, within 100 years. Uh, also, the vice president and prime minister of the UAE, Sheikh Mohammed, he said uh, they were currently among the world's top nine investors in space science, which is true. Uh, it gets a you know, there's a long tail there. Right. Um, in a series of tweets accompanied by photos of what uh, it describes as the planet's first miniature city, he said 2117 Mars Project is aimed to build knowledge and scientific capabilities involve the con- con- conversion of local universities into research centers. Uh, the project launched at the World Government Summit will focus on parallel research into exploring the means of mobility, housing, energy, as well as uh, speeding up the time it takes to travel to the planet. So there we go. Go go off. All right. United Arab Emirates. I mean, I, I would love to see a city on Mars in 2117, mostly because it would mean that I'm still alive. Yeah, no, I would definitely also love to see it. I'd love to see anything in 2117. <laughs> I don't know. It, yeah, I, I do a little worry a little bit about my quality of life if I'm alive at 137 years old, but may, maybe, maybe it'll be okay. Beyonce's twins will only be 99. They've got a chance. They've got a good chance. They they might go to Mars. They might go to Mars. They might. They've got a they've got a chance. Hank, do you think there's any uh, possibility of you going to Mars? No, 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 definitely not. All right. I have too many. I have too many okay. disorders. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't be among the first. Uh, the the cream of the crop. Yeah. They don't. They don't need anybody who has to use the toilet as much as me. Yeah, I feel like having all sort of colitis on Mars would not be fun. No. No, I, I think I'd want to stay where the medical infrastructure is. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking about that recently because I've been thinking about uh, like lovely places where I could move because it's just so cold here all the time and also flat. Uh, <laughs> but then I'm always torn because, you know, like I have a doctor here and a dentist and a good relationship with the hospitals, which provide excellent care. Oh, anyway, um, Hank, that's the oldest person thing I've ever said. Uh, I have officially entered late middle age. 
Hey, before we go, I just have to uh, share a few quick corrections. First, in our last episode, I said that AFC Wimbledon have been promoted five times in their uh, brief and illustrious history. Mm-hmm. As several people pointed out that, in fact, they have been promoted six times in their brief <laughs> and illustrious history because I was forgetting about last year. Uh, also, in a recent episode, you mentioned uh, the twin astronauts, Mark and yes. Scott, who took part in a study uh-huh. on the effects of uh, spending extended period of time in outer yes. space on the human body yes. by sending the, one of them into yes. space. Hannah pointed out that you got the the twin name wrong. Backwards. Mark Kelly yeah. was not the twin that spent a year in space. It was Scott. Sorry, Scott. And also Mark. Also, Lang wrote in to say that uh, in a recent episode of the podcast, we said that uh, mammoths and mastodons have hooves. Mm -hmm. They don't. They have feet like elephants. And then Lang sent in a very attractive uh, photograph (laughs) of the bones of mammoth feet, uh, which we will put on the Patreon. I mean, you can just picture the feet from the bones. Uh, it made me very glad that I was not alive during the same time that they were alive when humans were not at the top of the food chain. I love being at the top of the food chain. And lastly, about 500,000 people wrote in on the topic of what would happen uh, if gravity was suspended from Earth for 15 seconds. And I have to say, the answers varied wildly. Yes. Callum, though, uh, I, I've, I've been, I looked at this and I tried to figure out who was most correct. And I, I feel like Callum showed his work. And uh, and and centered in on sort of a consensus area, which is that the the height the fall would range from around four point four meters to around one point six meters if you sort of if like the Earth turned away from under you as you floated out, um, depending on where you are on the Earth. Though of course, if you were at the pole, you wouldn't move at all. Um, and 4.4 is enough to hurt you pretty bad. It, I will say, though, that if you're in a building, you're only going to go as high as the ceiling. You'll just hit the ceiling and you can, like, push yourself back down. So that's good. Uh, so that, from what I, what I have learned from this exercise is uh, don't go outside. Callum uh, uses the, the, the sign-off protons and pulsars, and uh, we're going to put the math that he or she, I think he, has done on the Patreon so that you can see... Uh, and and compare notes to see if we are correct uh, at what would happen if gravity turned off for 15 seconds. Okay, Hank, what did we learn today? Well, John, we learned that uh, you have to refrigerate your eggs if you're in America because of weird stuff. We learned that David should definitely name his child Ryan or possibly just Rye or possibly... I just came up with that one, but I like it. And we learned that we are all already related to Beyonce as well as to Minions uh, somehow, I think. We're not related to Minions. They are not real. Hank, I mean, <laughs> if we learned one thing from this podcast, it's that we were going to stop talking about Minions as if they were real. We're going to treat them as fictional characters forever and after, period. End of story. That is the one thing that we learned from this podcast. I'm not even going to continue with the what do we what do we learn bit because that is the thing that we learned. We have learned the thing that we learned, which is that minions will be treated as a fiction, and and oh. like many other fictions, as a fiction that does not reproduce. Thank you for listening to our podcast. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening to our podcast. Uh, do not do what I just did. I won't even tell you what I just did, but don't do it. I don't used do what Google. I just did. 
I used Google um, and I did a thing you shouldn't do. Don't, this podcast, hey, don't obviously never use Google. <laughs> never use Google in a situation like that. Anyway, moving on. You can email us at hankandjohn at gmail.com. We're never talking about minions on this podcast ever again. We've talked about minions for the last time. This is a this is a, a de-minioned podcast from here on out. You can email us at hankandjohn at gmail.com. Uh, you can send us your tweets as well if you want with the hashtag Dear Hank and John, or you can you can tweet us directly. I'm John Green. Hank is Hank Green. This podcast, this podcast is produced by Rosiana Hals Rojas and Sherry Adam Gibson. And our editor is Nicholas Jenkins. Victoria Bonjourner is our head of community and communications, and our music is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be awesome. awesome.